Chapter One, Part Two of The Complete Angler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Complete Angler by Isaac Walton. Chapter One, Part Two. Piscator. Then first, for the antiquity of angling, of which I shall not say much, but only this. Some say it is as ancient as Deucalion's flood. Others, that Belus, who was the first inventor of godly and virtuous recreations, was the first inventor of angling. And some others say, for former times have had their disquisitions about the antiquity of it, that Seth, one of the sons of Adam, taught it to his sons, and that by them it was derived to posterity. Others say that he left it engraved on those pillars which he erected, and trusted to preserve the knowledge of the mathematics, music, and the rest of that precious knowledge, and those useful arts, which by God's appointment or allowance and his noble industry, were thereby preserved from perishing in Noah's flood. These, sir, have been the opinions of several men, that have possibly endeavoured to make angling more ancient than is needful, or may well be warranted. But for my part, I shall content myself in telling you, that angling is much more ancient than the incarnation of our Saviour, for in the prophet Amos mention is made of fish-hooks, and in the book of Job, which was long before the days of Amos, for that book is said to have been written by Moses, mention is made also of fish-hooks, which must imply anglers in those times. But, my worthy friend, as I would rather prove myself a gentleman by being learned and humble, valiant and inoffensive, virtuous and communicable, than by any fond ostentation of riches, or, wanting those virtues myself, boast that these were in my ancestors, and yet I grant that where a noble and ancient descent and such merit meet in any man, it is a double dignification of that person. So if this antiquity of angling, which for my part I have not forced, shall, like an ancient family, be either an honour or an ornament to this virtuous art which I profess to love and practice, I shall be the gladder that I made an accidental mention of the antiquity of it, of which I shall say no more, but proceed to that just commendation which I think it deserves. And for that I shall tell you, that in ancient times a debate hath risen, and it remains yet unresolved, whether the happiness of man in this world doth consist more in contemplation or action, concerning which some have endeavoured to maintain their opinion of the first, by saying that the nearer we mortals come to God by way of imitation, the more happy we are, and they say that God enjoys himself only by a contemplation of his own infiniteness, eternity, power and goodness, and the like. And upon this ground, many cloisteral men of great learning and devotion prefer contemplation before action, and many of the fathers seem to approve this opinion, as may appear in their commentaries upon the words of our Saviour to Martha. And on the contrary, there want not men of equal authority and credit, that prefer action to be the more excellent, as namely, experiments in physic, and the application of it, both for the ease and prolongation of man's life, by which each man is enabled to act and do good to others, either to serve his country, or do good to particular persons. And they say also, that action is doctrinal, and teaches both art and virtue, and is a maintainer of human society, and for these and other like reasons, to be preferred before contemplation. Concerning which two opinions I shall forbear to add a third, by declaring my own, and rest myself contented in telling you, my very worthy friend, that both these meet together and do most properly belong to the most honest, ingenuous, quiet, and harmless act of angling. 
and first I shall tell you what some have observed, and I have found it to be a real truth, that the very sitting by the river side is not only the quietest and fittest place for contemplation, but will invite an angler to it. And this seems to be maintained by the learned Peter Dumoulin, who in his discourse of the fulfilling of prophecies observes that when God intended to reveal any future events or high notions to his prophets, he then carried them either to the deserts or the seashore, that having so separated them from amidst the press of people and business and the cares of the world, he might settle their mind in a quiet repose, and there make them fit for revelation. And this seems also to be imitated by the children of Israel, who having in a sad condition banished all mirth and music from their pensive hearts, and having hung up their then mute harps upon the willow-trees growing by the rivers of Babylon, sat down upon those banks, bemoaning the ruins of Zion, and contemplating their own sad condition. And an ingenious Spaniard says that rivers and the inhabitants of the watery element were made for wise men to contemplate, and fools to pass by without consideration. And though I will not rank myself in the number of the first, yet give me leave to free myself from the last, by offering to you a short contemplation, first of rivers, and then of fish, concerning which I doubt not, but to give you many observations, that will appear very considerable. I am sure they have appeared so to me, and made many an hour pass away more pleasantly, as I have sat quietly on a flowery bank by a calm river, and contemplated what I shall now relate to you. And first concerning rivers, there be so many wonders reported and written of them, and of the several creatures that be bred and live in them, and those by authors of so good credit, that we need not to deny them an historical faith, as namely of a river in Epirus, that puts out any lighted torch, and kindles any torch that was not lighted. Some waters being drunk cause madness, some drunkenness, and some laughter to death. The river Solaris in a few hours turns a rod or wand to stone, and our Camden mentions the like in England, and the like in Lochmere in Ireland. There is also a river in Arabia, of which all the sheep that drink thereof have their wool turned into a vermilion colour, and one of no less credit than Aristotle tells us of a merry river, the river Eleusina, that dances at the noise of music, for with music it bubbles, dances, and grows sandy, and so continues till the music ceases, but then it presently returns to its wonted calmness and clearness. And Camden tells us of a well near to Kirby in Westmoreland, that ebbs and flows several times every day, and he tells us of a river in Surrey, it is called Mole, that after it has run several miles, being opposed by hills, finds or makes itself away underground, and breaks out again so far off, that the inhabitants thereabout boast, as the Spaniards do of the river Annas, that they feed diverse flocks of sheep upon a bridge. And lastly, for I would not tire your patience, one of no less authority than Josephus, that learned Jew, tells us of a river in Judea that runs swiftly all the six days of the week, and stands still and rests all their Sabbath. But I will lay aside my discourse of rivers, and tell you some things of the monsters or fish, call them what you will, that they breed and feed in them. Pliny the philosopher says, in the third chapter of his ninth book, that in the Indian Sea, the fish called balena or whirlpool, is so long and broad, as to take up more in length and breadth than two acres of ground, and of other fish, of two hundred cubits long, and that in the river Ganges there be eels of thirty feet long. He says there that these monsters appear in that sea only when the tempestuous winds oppose the torrents of water falling from the rocks into it, 
and so turning what lay at the bottom to be seen on the water's top and he says that the people of Kadara, an island near this place make the timber for their houses of those fish-bones he there tells us that there are sometimes a thousand of these great eels found wrapped or interwoven together he tells us there that it appears that dolphins love music and will come when called for by some men or boys that know and used to feed them and that they can swim as swift as an arrow can be shot out of a bow and much of this is spoken concerning the dolphin and other fish as may be found also in the learned dr cassavan's discourse of credulity and incredulity printed by him about the year sixteen seventy i know we islanders are averse to the belief of these wonders but there be so many strange creatures to be now seen many collected by john tradescant and others added by my friend elias ashmole esq who now keeps them carefully and methodically at his house near to lambeth near london as may get some belief of some of the other wonders i mentioned i will tell you some of the wonders that you may now see and not till then believe unless you think fit you may there see the hog-fish the dog-fish the dolphin the coney-fish the parrot-fish the shark the poison-fish sword-fish and not only other incredible fish but you may there see the salamander several sorts of barnacles of solon geese the bird of paradise such sorts of snakes and such birds nests and of so various forms and so wonderfully made as may beget wonder and amusement in any beholder and so many hundred of other rarities in that collection as will make the other wonders i spake of the less incredible for you may note that the waters are nature's storehouse in which she locks up her wonders but sir lest this discourse may seem tedious i shall give it a sweet conclusion out of that holy poet mr george herbert his divine contemplation on god's providence lord who hath praise enough nay who hath any none can express thy works but he that knows them and none can know thy works they are so many and so complete but only he that owes them we all acknowledge both thy power and love to be exact transcendent and divine who costs so strangely and so sweetly move whilst all things have their end yet none but thine wherefore most sacred spirit i here present for me and all my fellows praise to thee and just it is that i should pay the rent because the benefit accrues to me and as concerning fish in that psalm wherein for height of poetry and wonders the prophet david seems even to exceed himself how doth he there express himself in choice metaphors even to the amazement of a contemplative reader concerning the sea the rivers and the fish therein contained and the great naturalist pliny says that nature's great and wonderful power is more demonstrated in the sea than on the land and this may appear by the numerous and various creatures inhabiting both in and about that element as to the readers of gesner rondelicius pliny ausonius aristotle and others may be demonstrated but i will sweeten this discourse also out of a contemplation in divine dubatus who says god quickened in the sea and in the rivers so many fishes of so many features that in the waters we may see all creatures even all that on the earth are to be found as if the world were in deep waters drowned for seas as well as skies have sun moon stars as well as air swallows rooks and stairs as well as earth vines roses nettles melons mushrooms pinks gillyflowers and many millions of other plants more rare more strange than these as very fishes living in the seas 
as also rams, calves, horses, hares, and hogs, wolves, urchins, lions, elephants, and dogs, yea, men and maids, and, which I most admire, the mitred bishop and the cowled friar, of which examples but a few years since were strewn the Norway and Polonian prince. These seem to be wonders, but have had so many confirmations from men of learning and credit, that you need not doubt them. Nor are the number, nor the various shapes of fishes more strange, or more fit for contemplation, than their different natures, inclinations, and actions, concerning which I shall beg your patient ear a little longer. The cuttlefish will cast a long gut out of her throat, which, like as an angler doth his line, she sendeth forth, and pulleth in again at her pleasure, according as she sees some little fish come near to her. And the cuttlefish, being then hid in the gravel, lets the smaller fish nibble and bite the end of it, at which time she, by little and little, draws the smaller fish so near to her, that she may leap upon her, and then catches and devours her, and for this reason some have called this fish the sea-angler. And there is a fish called a hermit, that at a certain age gets into a dead fish's shell, and like a hermit dwells there alone, studying the wind and weather, and so turns her shell, that she makes it defend her from the injuries that they would bring upon her. There is also a fish called by alien the Adonis, or darling of the sea, so called because it is a loving and innocent fish, a fish that hurts nothing that hath life, and is at peace with all the numerous inhabitants of that vast watery element, and truly I think most anglers are so disposed to most of mankind. And there are also lustful and chaste fishes, of which I shall give you examples. And first, what Eubata says of a fish called the Sargus, which, because none can express it better than he does, I shall give you in his own words, supposing it shall not have the less credit for being verse. For he hath gathered this and other observations, out of authors that have been great and industrious searchers into the secrets of nature. The adulterous Sargus doth not only change, wives every day, in the deep streams, but strange, as if the honey of sea-love delight could not suffice his ranging appetite, goes courting she-goats on the grassy shore, horning their husbands that had horns before. And the same author writes concerning the Cantharus, that which ye shall also hear in his own words. But contrary, the constant Cantharus is ever constant to his faithful spouse, in nuptial duties spending his chaste life, never loves any but his own dear wife. Sir, but a little longer, and I have done. Venator. Sir, take what liberty you think fit, for your discourse seems to be music, and charms me to an attention. Piscator. Why then, sir, I will take a little liberty to tell, or rather to remember you what is said of turtle-doves, first, that they silently plight their troth and marry, and that then the survivor scorns, as the Thracian women are said to do, to outlive his or her mate, and this is taken for a truth, and if the survivor shall ever couple with another, then not only the living but the dead, be it either the he or the she, is denied the name and honour of a true turtle-dove. And to parallel this land rarity, and teach mankind moral faithfulness, and to condemn those that talk of religion, and yet come short of the moral faith of fish and fowl, men that violate the law affirmed by St. Paul to be writ in their hearts, and which, he says, shall at the last day condemn and leave them without excuse. I pray hearken to what Dubatus sings, for the hearing of such conjugal faithfulness will be music to all chaste ears, and therefore I pray hearken to what Dubatus sings of the mullet. But for chaste love the mullet hath no peer, for if the fisher hath surprised her fear, as mad with woe, to shore she followeth, pressed to consort him, both in life and death. 
On the contrary, what shall I say of the housecock, which treads any hen, and then, contrary to the swan, the partridge, and pigeon, takes no care to hatch, to feed, or cherish his own brood, but is senseless though they perish? And it is considerable that the hen which, because she also takes any cock, expects it not, who is sure the chickens be her own, hath by a moral impression her care and affection to her own brood more than doubled, even to such a height that our Saviour, in expressing his love to Jerusalem, quotes her, for an example of tender affection, as his father had done Job, for a pattern of patience. And to parallel this cock, there be diverse fishes that cast their spawn on flags or stones, and then leave it uncovered, and exposed to become a prey and be devoured by vermin or other fishes. But other fishes, as namely the barbel, take such care for the preservation of their seed, that, unlike to the cock or the cuckoo, they mutually labour, both the spawner and the melter, to cover their spawn with sand, or watch it, or hide it in some secret place, unfrequented by vermin, or by any fish but themselves. Sir, these examples may to you and others seem strange, but they are testified, some by Aristotle, some by Pliny, some by Gesner, and by many others of credit, and are believed and known by diverse, both of wisdom and experience, to be a truth, and indeed are, as I said at the beginning, fit for the contemplation of a most serious and a most pious man. And doubtless this made the prophet David say, They that occupy themselves in deep waters see the wonderful works of God, indeed such wonders and pleasures too, as the land affords not, and that they be fit for the contemplation of the most prudent and pious and peaceable men, seems to be testified by the practice of so many devout and contemplative men, as the patriarchs and prophets of old, and of the apostles of our Saviour in our latter times, of which twelve we are sure he chose four that were simple fishermen, whom he inspired and sent to publish his blessed will to the Gentiles, and inspired them also with a power to speak all languages, and by their powerful eloquence to beget faith in the unbelieving Jews, and themselves to suffer for that Saviour whom their forefathers and they had crucified, and in their sufferings to preach freedom from the encumbrances of the law, and a new way to everlasting life. This was the employment of these happy fishermen, concerning which choice some have made these observations. First, that he never reproved these for their employment or calling, as he did the scribes and the money-changers, and secondly, he found that the hearts of such men by nature were fitted for contemplation and quietness, men of mild and sweet and peaceable spirits, as indeed most anglers are. These men are blessed Saviour, who is observed to love to plant grace in good natures, though indeed nothing be too hard for him. Yet these men he chose to call from their irreprovable employment of fishing, and gave them grace to be his disciples, and to follow him and do wonders, I say four of twelve. And it is observable that it was our Saviour's will that these, our four fishermen, should have a priority of nomination in the catalogue of his twelve apostles, as namely first St. Peter, St. Andrew, St. James, and St. John, and then the rest in their order. And it is yet more observable, that when our blessed Saviour went up into the mount, when he left the rest of his disciples, and chose only three to bear him company at his transfiguration, that those three were all fishermen, and it is to be believed that all the other apostles, after they betook themselves to follow Christ, betook themselves to be fishermen too. For it is certain that the greater number of them were found together fishing by Jesus after his resurrection, as it is recorded in the twenty-first chapter of St. John's Gospel. And since I have your promise to hear me with patience, I will take a liberty to look back upon an observation 
that hath been made by an ingenious and learned man, who observes that God hath been pleased to allow those whom he himself hath appointed to write his holy will in holy writ, yet to express his will in such metaphors as their former affections or practice had inclined them to. And he brings Solomon for an example, who before his conversion was remarkably carnally amorous, and after, by God's appointment, wrote that spiritual dialogue or holy amorous love-song, the Canticles, betwixt God and his church, in which he says his beloved had eyes, like the fish-pools of Heshbon. And if this hold in reason, as I see none to the contrary, then it may be probably concluded that Moses, who I told you before writ the book of Job, and the prophet Amos, who was a shepherd, were both anglers, for you shall in all the Old Testament find fish-hooks, I think but twice mentioned, namely by meek Moses, the friend of God, and by the humble prophet Amos. Concerning which last, namely the prophet Amos, I shall make but this observation, that he that shall read the humble, lowly, plain style of that prophet, and compare it with the high, glorious, eloquent style of the prophet Isaiah, though they be both equally true, may easily believe Amos to be not only a shepherd, but a good-natured, plain fisherman, which I do the rather believe by comparing the affectionate, loving, lowly, humble epistles of St. Peter, St. James, and St. John, whom we know were all fishers, with the glorious language and high metaphors of St. Paul, who we may believe was not. And for the lawfulness of fishing, it may very well be maintained by our Saviour's bidding, St. Peter cast his hook into the water, and catch a fish, for money to pay tribute to Caesar. And let me tell you that angling is of high esteem, and of much use in other nations. He that reads the voyages of Ferdinand Mendez Pinto shall find that there he declares to have found a king and several priests of fishing. And he that reads Plutarch shall find that angling was not contemptible in the days of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and that they, in the midst of their wonderful glory, used angling as a principal recreation. And let me tell you that in the Scripture angling is always taken in the best sense, and that though hunting may be sometimes so taken, yet it is but seldom to be so understood. And let me add this more, he that views the ancient ecclesiastical canons shall find hunting to be forbidden to churchmen, as being a turbulent, toilsome, perplexing recreation, and shall find angling allowed to clergymen, as being a harmless recreation, a recreation that invites them to contemplation and quietness. I might here enlarge myself, by telling you what commendations our learned Perkins bestows on angling, and how dear a lover and great a practiser of it our learned Dr. Whitaker was, as indeed many others of great learning have been. But I will content myself with two memorable men that lived near to our own time, whom I also take to have been ornaments to the art of angling. The first is Dr. Noel, sometime dean of the Cathedral Church of St. Paul in London, where his monument stands yet undefaced, a man that, in the reformation of Queen Elizabeth, not that of Henry the Eighth, was so noted for his meek spirit, deep learning, prudence, and piety, that the then Parliament and Convocation both chose and joined and trusted him to be the man to make a catechism for public use, such a one as should stand as a rule for faith and manners to their posterity. And the good old man, though he was very learned, yet knowing that God leads us not to heaven by many, nor by hard questions, like an honest angler, made that good, plain, unperplexed catechism which is printed with our good old service-book. I say this good man was a dear lover and constant practiser of angling, as any age can produce, and his custom was to spend besides his fixed hours of prayer, those hours which, by command of the church, were enjoined the clergy, and voluntarily dedicated to devotion, by many primitive Christians, I say, besides those hours, 
This good man was observed to spend a tenth part of his time in angling, and also, for I have conversed with those which have conversed with him, to bestow a tenth part of his revenue, and usually all his fish, amongst the poor that inhabited near to those rivers in which it was caught, saying often that charity gave life to religion, and, at his return to his house, would praise God he had spent that day free from worldly trouble, both harmlessly and in a recreation that became a churchman. And this good man was well content, if not desirous, that posterity should know he was an angler, as may appear by his picture, now to be seen, and carefully kept in Brazen-Nose College, to which he was a liberal benefactor, in which picture he is drawn, leaning on a desk, with his Bible before him, and on one hand of him his lines, hooks, and other tackling, lying in a round, and on his other hand are his angle-rods of several sorts, and by them this is written, that he died 13th February 1601, being aged ninety-five years, forty-four of which he had been dean of St. Paul's Church, and that his age neither impaired his hearing, nor dimmed his eyes, nor weakened his memory, nor made any of the faculties of his mind weak or useless. It is said that angling and temperance were great causes of these blessings, and I wish the like to all that imitate him, and love the memory of so good a man. My next and last example shall be that undervaluer of money, the late provost of Eton College, Sir Henry Wotton, a man with whom I have often fished and conversed, a man whose foreign employments in the service of this nation, and whose experience, learning, wit, and cheerfulness, made his company to be esteemed one of the delights of mankind. This man, whose very approbation of angling, were sufficient to convince any modest censurer of it, this man was also a most dear lover, and a frequent practiser of the art of angling, of which he would say, it was an employment for his idle time, which was then not idly spent. For angling was, after tedious study, a rest to his mind, a cheerer of his spirits, a diverter of sadness, a calmer of unquiet thoughts, a moderator of passions, a procurer of contentedness, and that it begat habits of peace and patience in those that professed and practised it. Indeed, my friend, you will find angling to be like the virtue of humility, which has a calmness of spirit, and a world of other blessings attending upon it. Sir, this was the saying of that learned man. And I do easily believe that peace and patience and a calm content did cohabit in the cheerful heart of Sir Henry Wotton, because I know that when he was beyond seventy years of age, he made this description of a part of the present pleasure that possessed him, as he sat quietly in a summer's evening, on a bank a-fishing. It is a description of the spring which, because it glided as soft and sweetly from his pen, as that river does at this time, by which it was then made, I shall repeat it unto you. This day Dame Nature seemed in love, the lusty sap began to move, fresh juice did stir the embracing vines, and birds had drawn their valentines. The jealous trout that low did lie, rose at a well-dissembled fly. There stood my friend, with patient skill, attending of his trembling quill. Already were the eaves possessed, with the swift pilgrim's daubed nest. The groves already did rejoice, in Philomel's triumphing voice. The showers were short, the weather mild, the morning fresh, the evening smiled. Joan takes her neat rubbed pail, and now she trips to milk the sand-red cow where, for some sturdy football swain, Joan strokes a syllabub or twain. The fields and gardens were beset, with tulips, crocus, violet, and now, though late, the modest rose, did more than half a blush disclose. Thus all looks gay and full of cheer, to welcome the new livered year. These were the thoughts that then possessed the undisturbed mind of Sir Henry Wotton. Will you hear the wish of another angler, and the commendation of his happy life, 
which he also sings in verse, viz. Joe Davis, Esquire. Let me live harmlessly and near the brink, of Trent or Avon have a dwelling-place, where I may see my quill or cork down sink, with eager bite of perch or bleak or dace, and on the world and my Creator think, while some men strive ill-gotten goods to embrace, and others spend their time in base excess, of wine or worse, in war and wantonness. Let them that list these pastimes still pursue, and on such pleasing fancies feed their fill, so I the fields and meadows green may view, and daily by fresh rivers walk at will, among the daisies and the violets blue, red hyacinth and yellow daffodil, purple narcissus like the morning rays, pale gander grass and azure culver keys. I count it higher pleasure to behold the stately compass of the lofty sky, and in the midst thereof like burning gold, the flaming chariot of the world's great eye, the watery clouds that in the air uprolled, with sundry kinds of painted colours fly, and fair Aurora lifting up her head, till blushing rise from old Tithonus' bed. The hills and mountains raised from the plains, the plains extended level with the ground, the grounds divided into sundry veins, the veins enclosed with rivers running round, these rivers making way through nature's chains, with headlong course into the sea profound, the raging sea beneath the valleys low, where lakes and rills and rivulets do flow, the lofty woods, the forests wide and long, adorned with leaves and branches fresh and green, in whose cool bowers the birds with many a song do welcome with their choir the summer's queen, the meadows fair where Flora's gifts among are intermixed with verdant grass between, the silver-scaled fish that softly swim within the sweet brook's crystal watery stream. All these and many more of his creation, that made the heavens the angler oft doth see, taking therein no little delectation, to think how strange, how wonderful they be, framing thereof an inward contemplation, to set his heart from other fancies free. And whilst he looks on these with joyful eye, his mind is rapt above the starry sky. Sir, I am glad my memory has not lost these last verses, because they are somewhat more pleasant and more suitable to May-day than my harsh discourse and I am glad your patience hath held out so long as to hear them and me, for both together have brought us within the sight of the thatch-house, and I must be your debtor if you think it worth your attention, for the rest of my promised discourse, till some other opportunity, and a like time of leisure. Venator. Sir, you have angled me on with much pleasure to the thatch-house, and I now find your words true, that good company makes the way seem short, for trust me, sir, I thought we had wanted three miles of this house, till you showed it to me, but now we are at it, we'll turn into it, and refresh ourselves with a cup of drink, and a little rest. Piscator. Most gladly, sir. And we'll drink a civil cup to all the otter-hunters that are to meet you to-morrow. Venator. That we will, sir, and to all the lovers of angling too, of which number I am now willing to be one myself, for by the help of your good discourse and company I have put on new thoughts both of the art of angling, and of all that profess it and if you will but meet me to-morrow at the time and place appointed, and bestow one day with me and my friends, in hunting the otter, I will dedicate the next two days to wait upon you, and we too will for that time do nothing but angle, and talk of fish, and fishing. Piscator. It is a match, sir, I will not fail you, God willing, to be at Amwell Hill to-morrow morning, before sun-rising. End of chapter 1, part 2